Open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I'm going to read John 4, 13 and 14, and then we'll pray. I like that so much. I think next week we'll probably do the praises before the preaching again. Let's get your heart ready. John 4, verses 13 and 14. This is Jesus talking to the woman at the well. And it says this. Jesus said to this woman, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Father, thank you for giving us this water. Thank you for making this water freely available to all. Thank you for calling all of us to come to the living water and giving us that message to to offer living water to all those around us. We pray that you would drive the gospel deeper into our hearts this evening, in this time. May your spirit take your word and these truths and our church family experiences to make us be doers of this word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been doing a series on how do you gospelize other people? Okay, how do you gospelize? How do you proclaim and apply the gospel to non-Christians and to Christians in regular conversation? So we talked about a few strategies. And this most recent one, two weeks ago, I talked about the four G's. There are four G's that you can always go to to share the gospel or, or apply the gospel to anyone. We covered four. Um, Before I get to what these four are, let me just say this. Tim Keller wrote this book called Counterfeit Gods. It's talking about idols in your life. And he talks about shallow idols and deeper idols. So a shallow idol might be, I want to get married. Or, I want my spouse to be gone. (laughs) Either either of those, either I want a spouse or I don't want a spouse. Um, That idol is a shallow idol. That's a surface idol. But deep down below it is another idol that drives that idol. And so the deeper idols, he said, are influence, power, comfort, pleasure, approval and love, or control and security. I want to call these not four deep idols. I'm going to call these deep desires. Because they're not always bad, right? So we all have a deep desire to be influential. We're made in God's image. So we're made to stamp other image bearers with the glory of God. We want to be influential in that regard. And in that sense, we want to be powerful. Again, it's wrong to want to be powerful for your own glory. But to have a power... How many of us want a powerful ministry of evangelism? Who doesn't want that? Who wants a powerful ministry of love in the church and in the community? And in your family? All of us want power in that regard, right? Or the deep desire of comfort and pleasure. God didn't make us to suffer forever. I know I talk a lot about suffering. Jesus talks a lot about suffering. So I'm just preaching through Mark. But the point here is, even in the light of suffering, the suffering God has for us is only temporal in light of eternity. Like Paul says, this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. So you got momentary versus eternal, light versus weight. And the point is, We're not made to suffer forever. We are made to suffer for a little bit if you're a Christian. 
And then you get eternal bliss and glory and comfort forever. So comfort and pleasure. Uh, the other deep desire is approval and love. Nobody likes to be disapproved by others, right? It's good to be approved by others. Yet we know in this fallen world, you're not going to be approved by everyone. So that's a deep desire of ours, is to be loved by other people. And the other deep desire is control and security. We want to know that everything's going to be okay. We want to be safe. We want to eliminate all risks. We want insurance, and not just insurance after tragedy. We want real insurance that tragedy would never happen, right? That's the kind of insurance we really want. And so in light of those things, those are our deep desires that drive us to live life. Those deep desires. Now, in light of that, I was giving you four G's, which is four ways of preaching the gospel to each other that you can do at almost any time in conversation with people. So you're with a coworker, non-Christian or Christian, and they're sharing to you the burdens of the week. What are you going to say to them? Let's say they're complaining about their boss. My boss is terrible. He doesn't understand. He's doing blah, blah, blah. And they go on and on. What do you say to them at that point? Ah, oh, yeah, you know what? Your boss is a jerk. I feel for you. You could say that. Or you could say, man, look on the bright side. At least you have a job. Look at all these poor people out there who have no jobs. Look at the unemployment rate. You could say that as well. Or you could bring the gospel to bear on the conversation. And these four G's are four different keys to use in conversations to help people think about the gospel. So let me tell you the four G's. God is great. God is glorious. God is good. And God is gracious. God is great, God is glorious, God is good, and God is gracious. The first two go like this. And we talked about these last time, so I'm not going to explain them. I'm just recapping. God is, so this is what you could say to somebody. Man, I'm so worried about you know my dad who's flying in the plane and his plane isn't landing for a few hours. What you know? I'm worried. So let's say I'm talking to one of you. You can say, PJ, I have good news for you. God is great, so you don't have to be in control. Is that good news? That's good news. That because my dad's in Christ and I'm in Christ, God is great. I don't have to be in control. So I don't have to worry. Okay, that's how you'd apply that. Because everything is under God's control. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. So God is great. You don't have to be in control. The second G we talked about two weeks ago is God is glorious, majestic, powerful. It just has to be a G. He's awesome in, a, in the real sense of awesome, like inspiring awe, not just like cool awesome. He is awesome, so we don't have to fear others. So that's good news when you say, man, when I get home, my wife is going to kill me. Or this person is just so domineering. I'm so scared of this person. Then you say, hey, I have good news for you. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. And we talked about when God is, when people are big, God is what? Small. And when God is big, then people are small. And when you're scared of people, your boss, a family member, a fellow church member, a neighbor, when you're scared of them, it's because in your mind, they're so big and your God is so small. But if you remember that God is great and his greatness is unsearchable and he's big and powerful and mighty then you don't have to be scared of anyone. That's good news, right? Try that with your kids. God is glorious. You don't have to fear others.
Okay, so those are two from last time. We're going to look at two this week. The two this week are, God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. Okay? God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. And the fourth G is, God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. Okay? Let's look at those one at a time. First, God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. We did this last time, so we need to do it again. Look at your neighbor or someone around you and tell them, God is good, so you don't have to look elsewhere. Okay. God is good. You're gospelizing each other here. God is good. You have a deep desire for comfort. You have a deep desire for pleasure. And guess what? God is so good that you don't have to look to anyone else or anything else to get that comfort and pleasure that you desire. You're in John chapter 4. Look at John 4, 13 and 14. It says this. Everyone who drinks this water will get what? Thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that Jesus gives will never what? Never get thirsty. In fact, the water I give will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. So if Jesus gives you a certain water, you're not going to be thirsty anymore. Instead, you're going to have a spring inside of you that's going to be what? Welling up out of you into eternal life. It's not that you never get thirsty again. It's not that you ever, you never desire pleasure anymore or you never desire comfort anymore. It's that every time you desire pleasure or comfort, you have a spring coming out of you of the water of life and you can drink again. It's like a camel pack. Do you guys know what a camel pack starts? Those water bottles that are like backpacks and has a straw you put here and you can carry it with you wherever you go. You have a replenishing camel pack or water bottle with you everywhere you go. It's flowing from within you because the Holy Spirit now lives in you. In John chapter 7, you can look at that later, John 7 verses 37 to 39, Jesus says that when he leaves, after he dies and rises and goes back to heaven, he'll give us the Holy Spirit, and through the Holy Spirit, waters of living water will flow out from us. So here's the good news, that when you are in Christ, whenever you get thirsty, God is so good that you don't have to look elsewhere. I was reading today from Tim Chester, his book called um, You Can Change. It's a really good book, You Can Change. He, he tells a story about a, a Russian widow who's a senior citizen who has enough retirement that she doesn't need to work anymore. And yet she works in a real um, dirty um, apartment complex as a janitor. And what she does is she works really hard there as a janitor because every penny she gets from that work she sends it to missionaries overseas that she'll never see or never know. Here's my question. Why would you do such a thing? You're already in retirement age. You don't need to work. Why are you exerting and tiring yourself out day in and day out for a bunch of churches and missionaries that you will never see or meet here on earth? Why would you do that? Here's why. Look at Matthew 13. Go to Matthew 13, verse 44. Turn to the left in your Bible, Matthew 13, 44. Matthew 13, 44. Just one verse, a one verse parable from Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he sells everything he has and what? Buys the field. What does he sell to get that field? Everything. Everything. Is that sacrifice? 
Yeah, well, it depends on what the treasure is, right? If the treasure is a hundred times worth what you're selling, is that a sacrifice? No, that's an investment, right? That's an investment that gives an immediate return. So notice he sells it in his what? Look at look at the look at the passage again. In his what? Joy. God is so good to him. The kingdom of heaven is so valuable to him and so good to him that he's willing to sell everything to have the kingdom. That's like this lady. If she has God and she has the kingdom and eternal heaven as her hope, she can slave away for 10 more years of her life and give to this kingdom and make an investment that will count for eternity, right? See, when God is so good, you don't have to look for your comfort here on earth. God is good. You don't have to look elsewhere. That's the good news. Tim Chester also says, every longing in us is a version of our longing for God. Do you have, do you suffer from the if only mentality? Have you suffered from that mentality lately? If only I was healthy. If only I was younger. If I, only I was older. If only the church was this way. If only I had known this much of the Bible. If only I had this much money. If only I was at this stage. When you have that mentality, which we all suffer from, from time to time, here's a question for you, if you have the if only mentality. Do you really believe that God is good to us in Christ right now? In this moment, in these circumstances, with these tensions, and the if only still not yet fulfilled? Do you really believe right now that God is good? In these circumstances, before it's resolved. See, when you have the if-only mentality and it dominates your heart and mind, where it's bringing you down, you have to ask yourself the question, do I really believe in the goodness of God in Christ? Or am I doubting it? Sin offers pleasure. God offers more pleasure because he offers us himself. And he's the ultimate treasure. He's the ultimate pleasure. Let's turn to one verse of application before we go to the next G. Go to Hebrews 11, to the right of your Bible, near the, near the back. Hebrews 11, let's look, at, let's look at a story of Moses here in three verses. Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. Moses understood that God is good, so good that you don't have to look elsewhere. Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. You know Hebrews 11, it's the great hall of faith, right? So Hebrews eleven twenty four. listen to what it says. It says this, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer. What did he choose to do? Chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, the short lived pleasures of sin. Why? Why would you give up the treasures of Egypt? To suffer with slaves, or to quote the song, I'd rather have Jesus, than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Why would you rather have Jesus than be the king who can do everything you want? Why did Moses decide that? Verse 26, for he considered the reproach because of the Messiah, Christ, to be greater what? Value? Wealth, treasure, greater wealth, greater treasure than all the treasures of Egypt since his attention was on the what? He was looking to the what? Reward. 
You see, he did not need the pleasures that earth had to offer. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy earthly pleasures. We should enjoy earthly pleasures with a God-centered joy. Because all earthly pleasures are meant to point us to who? To God. So you should never enjoy anything in a godless way. You should enjoy everything in a godly way. And when some of those pleasures are taken away, guess what you have anyways? God. And the reward. And if you believe God is good to you in Christ, you don't have to look elsewhere. So you could say to your friend who is complaining perhaps about his boss at work, hey, I have good news for you. God is good to us in Christ. You don't have to look elsewhere. You don't need another boss. Because the boss of all bosses, the Lord of Lords, is on the throne and he's good. So praise God that we don't have a bad boss up there, right? If that was the bad boss, now we'd all be in trouble. But praise God that God is good to us in Christ. Okay, so how does this apply to us? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, run the race. We won't read it for the sake of time, but run the race of faith, looking unto Jesus. Drop the weight and the sin, which so easily entangles us, and look to Jesus and run the race of faith, trusting that God is good. That's the first thing. Trust God and keep running the race of faith. Trust God and keep obeying God. Or to use to quote the hymn, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be what? Happy. That's goodness, right? That's pleasure. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So trust and obey. Run the race of faith in loving people out of your trust in God. Or like I quoted already, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His love is everlasting. His truth endures to all generations. So when someone is tempted to complain or feel empty due to someone's disapproval or due to some discomfort or displeasure, just remind them, hey friend, God is good. You don't have to look elsewhere. Now you're saying, what if they're not a Christian though? Is that true for them? Is God good to non-Christians? Yes, but is he fully going to satisfy non-Christians? No, they're under God's judgment. But you get to gospelize them. How is God good? Because you're right. God is good to non-Christians. How is God good to non-Christians? Tell me some ways. Wait, say that, Ken. He'll, 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 he offers salvation from their sins. Barbara? He sends Christians to talk to them right now in that conversation. Gene, did you have something? Yeah, he makes the rain to shine, or the rain to shine, the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, and the rain for the just and the unjust. He gives everyone air. If you're breathing right now, you're breathing right now, that's God's goodness. But his goodness is even more than just temporary blessings. He offers salvation. So when you say to a non-Christian, they're complaining about life or discomfort or displeasure, you can say, I have good news for you. God is good to you in Christ. So you don't have to look elsewhere. He's offering to give you himself right now. It becomes actually an evangelism moment, right? Notice, gospelizing is evangelizing. It's just evangelizing Christians or non-Christians. So you could use this with non-Christians. You know what this world needs more of? Good news, right? Just look at news. CNN.com, turn on to the news channels. You don't get much good news. You get like one heartwarming story a week, perhaps, at the most, Right? What this world needs is not just one heartwarming story. They need a rock to build their lives on. And we have it. The rock is, God is good to you. You don't have to look elsewhere. Fifth or fourth, G. 
So God is great. We don't have to be in control. God is glorious. We don't have to fear others. God is good. We don't have to look elsewhere. And lastly, God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. Go to Luke 15. Luke 15, the story of the prodigal sons. I said that plural, prodigal sons. Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. As you're turning to Luke 15, 11, let me tell you the deep desire here. The deep desire in, in God is gracious is we want approval and love from others, don't we? It doesn't feel good to be rejected by other people. Or to be unloved. You know, do you struggle with this? Maybe it's just me. But there's times where I rerun an argument in my mind. And I always win the reruns. Right? Don't you? You always win the reruns of the argument. Because you're like, I should have said this. Or if I would have said this, then I totally would have cornered that person. They would have seen that I was right. Now here's the sad thing about my life in terms of sin. And just selfishness and immaturity. I will rerun arguments that are so insignificant and unimportant to the grand scheme of God's plan in the world. And I'll, it might even keep me up at night where I'm thinking about the argument. Oh, I should have said this. What was I thinking? Why didn't I think of that earlier? And then I'll get a call for a pastoral crisis, maybe a marriage falling apart or something. I go to their house. I meet with them. It's the most distressing trauma that a family could face, perhaps. I get back home and I sleep like a baby. There's no reruns in my mind. Now, in proportion of which was the bigger crisis, this is a big pastoral crisis. And I could sleep like a baby because God's in control. But when there's an argument that I lost and I keep rerunning in my head, I can't sleep sometimes or I keep thinking about it. Why? What's wrong with me? Well, there's a lot of things wrong with me. Don't answer that question out loud. But um, one of the things that's wrong is that I want to be proved to be right. I want approval from others, and I want to be seen to be right in an idolatrous type of way. And, and, and so the good news for me, and the good news for people like me who struggle with this, is, you know what, PJ? God is gracious. You don't have to prove yourself. God accepts you in his grace. You don't have to prove yourself to, to others. Now, we get that from Luke 15. So go to Luke 15. And here you're, you're familiar with the, the story of the prodigal son. In verse 11, it says, A man had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. Riotous, reckless living. After he had spent everything, a severe, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. And so this man loses it all. First of all, he slaps his dad in the face and says, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance. You won't die, so I wish you would just die to give me the inheritance now. Dad says, okay, fine, take your inheritance. He leaves, he spends it all, totally dishonors his dad. Shameful, shameful decisions here. And then he's in a pigsty. And then he comes to himself, it says. He came to himself. He came to his senses and realized, my dad's servants eat better than me. What am I doing here in a pigsty eating pig leftovers? So he says, I'm going to get up, go to my dad, and tell him I'm not worthy to be your son. Let me be like a hired servant. 
So he gets up and goes to his dad. And guess what his dad does? His dad sees him afar off. Sees a little silhouette of his son. He runs to his son full speed, which is totally shameful in that day for men to run. Um, he grabs his son, hugs his dirty son, kisses his son, gets clothes on him, a new robe, a ring on his finger. His, his son doesn't even get to say he wants to be the servant. His, his dad just loves him and accepts him and forgives him. This lavish grace, scandalous grace. This man didn't even get to fully repent yet. You know, he said, you know, he says here, go to verse, uh, verse 20. He got up, went to his father while the son was still far away off. He runs with compassion, throws his arms around him. Verse 21, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He didn't get to say his proposal. I want to be your slave. Before he could even get to his proposal, the dad blesses him. Scandalous grace. He didn't earn it. Did nothing to deserve it. He didn't have to prove himself. The father just accepted him in his grace. Now, let's contrast that with the, with the other son. The other son, look at verse 28. I want to show you four things about this other son. Verse 28, he became what? Angry and didn't want to go into the party. So his father came out and pleaded with him. Notice this. When you don't get grace, here this man has restless anger. He's angry at his dad. He's angry at his brother. He's angry at the situation. It's a restless type of anger because he sees God as a contract. He sees his dad as fulfilling a contract or breaking the contract. How dare you spend my money, my inheritance, to celebrate this loser brother who shamed our family and spent a third of your possessions? So, um, he sees God as a contract. And when you have this restless anger, you know what happens to you? When things go well in your life, you get proud and you pat yourself on the back. I did a great job. Thank you very much. What about when things don't go well? And you have this restless anger. When things don't go well, you either blame God and get bitter at the situation, or you blame yourself and feel guilty because you don't understand grace. You either blame others in bitterness or blame yourself in guilt, and there's this restless anger inside that the son had because he did not understand grace. Secondly, though, look at verse 29. Not only did he have restless anger, he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving away many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. And yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. What do we call this? Joyless duty. I have slaved away for how long? Years. I've slaved away for many years. There's joyless duty. When you don't understand grace, everything is a joyless duty. This is in contrast to Jacob. Do you remember when Jacob was in love with Rachel in Genesis? You know how long he had to work for his wife? Seven years. And you know what, the, what Moses writes? The seven years seemed to him as nothing. When you're in love with someone, you'll go to the nth degree to have them, right? He's so in love with, with Rachel that seven years seems like nothing. It wasn't joyless duty. It was joyful duty. Because he saw the reward. But this son has no joy in his duty. Do you know how many days and hours and months and years I have slaved away for you? And yet you treat my brother like this. How dare you, dad? 
Not only joyless duty, in verse 29, again, misunderstanding grace, there's anxious performance. I have never disobeyed your commands. Right? I've, I've kept them all. I've been anxious to make sure that I kept all your commands so that I earned my keep. That doesn't understand grace. Not only is there anxious performance, look at verse 30. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. What is he doing there? Between him and his brother, what is he doing? Comparison. Comparing yourself to people more sinful than you. I'm not as bad as this person. I'm not as bad as that person. It's a minimizing of my sin, a maximizing of my righteousness, and then when I look at other people, I'm maximizing their what? Their sin, and minimizing their righteousness. That's what happens when you misunderstand grace. Restless anger, joyless duty, anxious performance, comparing yourself, comparing myself to people worse off than me to make myself feel better, to feel approved. And guess what the good news is? God is gracious. You don't have to prove yourself. He knows you're a sinner. You don't have to pretend you're better than you are. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. I'm going to totally mess up his quote here. But he says something like this. You know when you get criticized by people? This is what Charles Spurgeon says. Whenever you get criticized by people, you shouldn't get mad because if they knew the truth about how sinful you were, they'd have a lot more to complain about than they're complaining. So why would you get mad? Even if they're wrong in their complaint. You say, man, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. They don't even know me. Yeah, but if they did know you, PJ, you know, there's a lot more they could say. And that's true. And when you understand the depth of your sin and you don't have to pretend anymore and perform for the approval of others, when you receive the grace of God and you're lavished with the grace of God, you're free. You don't have to prove yourself to others. Now you're free to love them without the fear of, well, am I going to lose Barbara's approval of me or not? I don't have to fear that. Am I going to lose Al's approval of me, my parents' approval? If God approves of me, I'm free to love them and serve them without the fear of whether they approve or disapprove of me. Because God approves of me, not because I'd earned it, but because of Christ. And so now I'm free to serve. I'm free to love. I'm free to sacrifice. I'm free to get spat on or opposed or mocked because God approves. God is gracious. So you don't have to prove yourself to other people. That's good news. Our world doesn't know that. Our world runs the rat race, don't they? They're on that treadmill of always trying to prove that they've made it, that they've done it, that they're worthy. And God says, get off the treadmill. I'm gracious. You don't have to prove yourself. As Christ lived for you, gave you his righteousness, died for you and rose for you. If you are united to Christ by faith and repentance, I accept you fully, arms wide open, full embrace. So how does this apply to our lives? There's a lot of ways this applies to your life. I'll just give you three and then we'll close in prayer. Okay? Number one application here, because God is good and you don't have, or because God is gracious and you don't have to prove yourself, own all of your sin and don't excuse any of it. Own your sin. Or let me put it this way. You can never, and I don't mean this lightly, you can never overestimate how sinful you are. You can't do it. Our sin is so deep, the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, verse 9. So own your sin. You're a sinner. 
Just own that fact. And don't excuse it. Take responsibility for it. Because when you do, that's point number one, then you can bring it to the cross for confession and cleansing and repentance, right? Look at 1 John 1. 1 John 1, verse 8 and, and 10 says, If you say you don't have sin, guess what? You're a what? You're a liar. Of course you're a sinner. But 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to what? Forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you confess. But if you don't own your sin and you don't confess, there's no forgiveness for that. For in, in, impenitence, unrepentance, God is gracious, but you receive the kindness and forgiveness through repentance. He promises He'll forgive you, but you still have to repent. And why can God forgive us? Because 1 John 2, verse 2 says this. 1 John 2, 1 says, If anyone sins, the middle of the verse, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. Because Christ died for us, your sins are covered. Your righteousness is full. You're a saint. Not only are you a sinner, you're also a saint. You're a sinner and a saint at the same time. That's what you are as a Christian. And because that's true, remind yourself regularly. And remind each other. Here's the application. Say to one another, when you're struggling with guilt, God is gracious, so you don't have to prove yourself. Just confess your sins. Ask God for forgiveness. Ask the appropriate people for forgiveness if you sin against people. And rest in the fact that even if the people you confess to don't forgive you, God approves of you because you're in Christ Jesus. He's gracious. You don't have to look elsewhere. Let's pray that our church grows as a gospelizing community where we tell each other regularly, God is great, God is glorious, God is good, and God is gracious. Let's pray. Father, push the gospel deep into our souls, we pray. Save us from continuing to give weak, sentimental thoughts of sympathy. We have good intentions, Lord, I know that. But good intentions and weak, sentimental thoughts are not enough. You give us the gospel, the treasure, and you give us the privilege of sharing it with each other. So help us to remind each other, even as we, we remind ourselves, that you are glorious so we don't have to fear others, that you are great so we don't have to be in control, that you are good so we don't have to look elsewhere, and that you are gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves. What a joy to pray to you in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your greatness and goodness to us. We pray now that as we transition to our prayer time corporately, that your hand and favor would continue to be on us and your spirit would continue to move amongst us now. For our brothers and sisters who are going to be leaving right now, we pray for a safe drive home, that you would hide the words in their heart that they would not sin against you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.